Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. The following is a collection of clips from shows on the Podmoth Media Network. From true crime and comedy to movie reviews and audio dramas, we've got you covered. Podmoth is an exclusive, collaborative, lively collection of podcasts that lead more toward the odd, strange, and macabre, with humor and history mixed in. Have a listen. You're sure to find something you'll enjoy. There's something for everyone at Podmoth. If you hear something you like, be sure to listen, like, follow, and subscribe. Hello, Ugly Radio. Bottom of the Eighth. Written by Andrew Shanks. Read by Liam White. Aging pro baseball player Greg Nicheski arrived at the stadium to find that his normal position, the right field, had been replaced by an ever so slightly increasing, utterly bottomless hole in the earth. Management of the baseball team refused or ignored to address the issue before the start of the game, and Greg, being the professional he was, shared right field with the sinkhole. He didn't actually seem to mind. Sure, his stats would take a dive for the day, but his averages were trending downward for seasons now. His knees were a nagging, weighted reminder that he was not who he once was. Ever the professional, Greg played his part as best he could, knowing sooner rather than later he would be a footnote in the team's history, a feeling made more apparent with the sinkhole to his left. He had seen maybe four pop flies come his way all game. The sinkhole fielded them all. It wasn't until he took the field at the bottom of the eighth inning that Greg was immediately struck by the appearance of a woman standing at the edge of the bottomless crater. Security seemed nonplussed. The crowd's attention barely a register. She looked particularly sad As she eyed the cavernous void, her eyes were woeful, determined, as she balanced on the tips of feet, letting gravity do the rest, mere seconds away from throwing herself in. Greg, being the professional he was, dropped his glove and approached the woman. He said that no pain in this world was worth leaping into this massive unknown chasm. He praised the ballpark's concession stand and said that the first round was on him if she just took a step back. He said, it's going to be okay, knowing it was a lie. And the woman knew too. Experts would spend years analyzing her lips, scrutinizing the syllables she spoke and marking the shape of her mouth, all to hearsay conclusions. But the fans in the stands that day, the ones that cared to notice, attest that they could see a smile materialize on both the baseball player and woman's face. They held each other close and leapt into the void together. They seemed happy doing it, too. The team would end up losing the game 3-7. to seven. The sinkhole would be named most valuable player.
Hey, everybody. I'm Jay. And I'm Kay. And we're the Fuck My Work Life podcast. So we're the podcast that shares your weird, crazy, interesting, and sometimes spooky stories from the workplace. And we have got a spooky workplace story for you today. Hey, y'all. So here's a little story about a haunted restaurant. About 10 years ago, I was a chef and general manager of a Southwestern restaurant in Salt Lake City, Utah. We had taken over a space that had a string of failed concepts within its walls before we took over. For the first few months, I spent close to 80 hours a week in the building as we were building our brand and customer base. I noticed things being off immediately. First off, we opened in the wintertime, but my staff and I would constantly hear what sounded like high school band marching music through the walls, as if it was coming from outside. But if you opened a window or went outside for a better listen, you would hear nothing. (laughs) Another phenomenon phenomenon, was the elevator doors opening and closing all through the night. We would catch this on camera all the time, open and shut with nobody in the building. Servers and kitchen staff would often report stacks of plates toppling over off the service station and back kitchen line, often with no report of tremor or quake felt within the building. One of the most startling moments was one morning coming in and finding the lobby gift shop in disarray, with candy bars and trinkets scattered across the floor. When we checked the security footage, nobody could be seen flinging these items from the gift shop. You could only see the objects being flung through the air. That is some scary shiz. Yeah. This happened several times. One morning, one of our beer sales reps came in to take pictures of our tables and advertisement displays only to inform us that several of his pictures included a mysterious, transparent human figure in the background. We reviewed the security footage and saw nobody else in the room when he was taking the pictures. I started doing research on the property and found that the movie theater and restaurant development we were a part of was once the city high school, which had been built in the early 1900s and torn down in the early 90s. There was a football field exactly where my building stood. Not only that, in the 1930s, there was a terrible accident involving a school bus and a train whose tracks passed behind the school. The bus driver, a man named Slim Silcox. Now that's a name. Slim Silcox. Slim Silcox (laughs) at your service. So Slim Silcox accidentally turned onto the tracks in snowy conditions and drove head on into the train. He and 25 students died in the crash the worst in U.S. history at the time. For years after, many claimed that the school was haunted, as well as the movie theater and the businesses that were built on the property. We found a picture of Slim Silcox and were amazed to find a striking resemblance to the man who appeared in the beer guy's photos. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Over the time I was employed at the restaurant, several paranormal investigators set up ghost hunts on the property and claimed the property was in fact haunted. No shit. If you can watch a video of your gift shop and just see things randomly being flung by nobody, I think yeah. I think there's your proof that your place is haunted. <laughs> yeah, you've got a haunting. Gratefully, this is the only workplace where I encountered paranormal activity. Thanks for reading. Have a great week, Antonio. That is 
scurry. That's scurry. So scurry. But for more crazy fun workplace stories, check us out at FMWL Pod on all the socials and check out all the other Pod Moth Network shows. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network. Your foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week, I introduce you to the strange world of early medicinal cures, some more odd than others, and enlighten you with the details of a strange arrangement that actually came to benefit women all over the world. Have you ever been chopping vegetables and cut yourself? Likely you have, but you just rubbed some animal dung into the cut and kept chopping, right? Or maybe you cleaned the cut with soap and water and slathered on some antibiotic ointment and a band-aid. Likely you did the latter, but the former was practiced in ancient Egypt. Ancient Egyptians had their medical systems on lock. They were incredibly well organized, and even had different doctors that specialized in different ailments. If you arrived at the doctor with a deep cut, however, you'd likely be treated with lizard blood, mouse entrails, and moldy bread all rubbed into the wound. I'm amazed that many of those treated didn't wind up with tetanus. Oh wait, they did! According to 1500 BC's Ebers Papyrus, donkey, dog, gazelle, and fly dung were hailed for their healing powers. Yeah, I mean, they did often lead to other infections, but research has shown that microflora found in some types of animal excrement actually contain some antibiotic qualities. In Iran, healers would use donkey dung as a way to cure oral ulcers, bronchitis, vaginal infections, and many more ailments with few side effects. The dung was burned, and the afflicted individual would inhale the smoke. This practice has been seen in over 50 countries. Now, at this point, you may be asking me how anybody would manage to collect fly dung. My guess is with a very tiny pooper scooper. Like what you've heard? Find the Identity Podcast wherever you binge and on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod. Transcripts, when available, are posted on my blog at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. This is Abigail Reynolds with my co-host, Michael Colby. Hey, everyone. Jack Billings presents Haunted Apartment Complex. Let's get spooky! <laughs> hey, Dandra! On the house! I... Yeah, I... I just don't see anything that doesn't look like it should be there. Jack, Jack give, give me a, me a break. break. You're just, just making this up. I mean, out of all the stupid shit you come up with, a miniature owl living in your face. Do not 
that either of you dare question the existence of my own Scotty Jingle Jive Clive. He'll get so mad. Okay. That's enough of that. There is now spit on my floor. What the fuck, Jack? <laughs> yeah, that baddie was on me. I was aiming for Michael's shoe, you know, as a prank. But, uh, you know, he has a ghost body now. Hey, listen, I'll have someone swing on by and clean that up, you know, after this safety club meetup. Don't you worry a single eyelash. Or maybe you could, like, clean up your own bodily fluids? Well, I mean, that doesn't sound like something I'd do. But, uh, we'll see. I, I mean, I guess. Yep. So this little mouth owl has been with me since I was in elementary school. We struck up a little agreement. He would study and give me all the answers for testing and whatnot. And I would allow him to thrive off of my saliva. You know, my very own mouth juice. You know what, Jack? This stuff used to be funny. We'd, like, sit around and talk about it at the donut slut during our morning podcast meetings. But today, today I'm starting to get kind of worried that there's something truly wrong with you. Yeah... I just really hope my next boss isn't quite so eccentric. Welcome to Getting Down and Wordy. A fun little bit of American English trivia uh, is about the Mary 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 merger. Um, <laughs> this is like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm pronouncing it wrong because I am one of 57% of Americans who... I cannot uh, believe that number is so low. I know, like, right? I feel like it's 99% of Americans. I and well, I have a list of like where all of the outliers yeah. are, and they are very wrong. Um, I guess they're they're all in very concentrated places. I guess I guess this is a whole electoral college thing. All yeah, over again, pretty right? much. <laughs> yeah, those we're big overrepresented. Cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the places geography. that you get a lot of like um uh the strong. I mean, we'll get into it, but 57% right. of English, uh, American English speakers um, have what is called the Mary, Mary, Mary merge, which is that the word Mary, M-A-R-Y, uh, Mary, M-E-R-R-Y, and Mary, M-A-R-R-Y are all pronounced the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Russell. And I pronounce them the same as well. All three of them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's such news to me that anyone pronounced these words differently. I know, it's weird, I right? I have trouble believing it, yeah. So, uh, 57% of us pronounce them all the same. Um, 17% uh, have a linguistic um, uh, anomaly known as a no Mary, Mary, Mary merger. Um, so this would be your areas like Philadelphia, New York City, Rhode Island, those uh, northeastern uh, regions that have uh, very, very thick accents. Um, interestingly, so... Uh, Philadelphia may not have a Mary, Mary, Mary merger. It does have a Murray, Murray merger. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> the, uh, the word, uh, M E R R Y is pronounced, uh, the same as Murray, uh, 
M-U-R-R-A-Y. Sure, so, which is funny because I think of Murray's as pretty grumpy old guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? You don't usually, it, you don't think of Murray as the Mary guy. But like, Philadelphians I would to, probably do. <laughs> maybe. There has to be a mall Santa named Murray. <laughs> Murray Christmas, he says. <laughs> <laughs> if you are a mall Santa living in Philadelphia, and that is not like your tagline for everything you do forever. I'm really disappointed in you, sir. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Branding. It's important. So 17% uh, of American English speakers uh, have no merger. Um, mm-hmm. 16% have a Mary Mary merger. That's M-A-R-Y and M-A-R-R-Y. Um, so this would be your Northeastern Americans, um, your New Hampshire, your Maine. Um, 9% have a Mary Mary merger, M-A-R-Y-M-E-R-R-Y, um, mostly in the American South and Montreal. The rarest of the mergers, only about 1% of uh, Americans have a singular Mary Mary merger, uh, which is uh, M-E-R-R-Y and M-A-R-R-Y. Ah, uh, weird. Yeah. I know, yeah. So uh, yeah. that would be the type of merger where uh, Mary and Mary are pronounced the same, but Mary is not. This does not translate well in audio, does it? Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Addicted to Crime podcast. I'm your host Shelby, and today I am going to talk to you about the unsolved Scottish Bible John murders. Jemima McDonald was a 32-year-old woman and mother of a 12-year-old daughter and a 7- and 9-year-old sons. Her friends and family nicknamed her Mima. She lived at an apartment building at 15 McKeith Street in Bridgeton. She was a lovely woman, and she too loved to dance, and found herself at the Barrowland Ballroom on August 16, 1969. The ballroom was not far from her home, only a mile away, and it was a place she calmly found herself. Her sister Margaret had agreed to stay and watch her kids for her while she enjoyed the night out. It was the third consecutive night that Mima had gone out dancing. She'd gone out Thursday and Friday night, and now we've arrived at Saturday night. Mima dropped her kids off with Margaret and chatted with her for a few minutes. She still had her hair up in curlers with a headscarf over them, and she told Margaret that she was going to leave the curlers in her hair for as long as possible, basically until she arrived at the ballroom so she could have fresh, intact curls for the evening. She was wearing a, quote, black pinafore dress, white blouse, off-white slingback shoes, and a warm brown coat, end quote. Before going to the ballroom, Mima went to a pub called Betty's Bar. It was only a few feet from the ballroom, and I read that the ballroom didn't serve alcohol at the time, so patrons would first go to the bars, and then they would go to the ballrooms next. Witnesses at Betty's Bar later state that they saw her at the bar, and she was talking to a man with red hair. The man was slim-billed, tall, and was dressed in a black suit. Mima then went to the ballroom, and witnesses there stated that she danced with this red-haired man in the suit, the red-haired man in his suit. Even though there was an estimated 2,000 people in attendance that night, Mima and this red-haired stranger were still seen. The witnesses said that this man stuck out to them because everyone else attending was dressed more casually. 
that he was wearing a black suit with a white shirt, and one witness even said that he had hand-stitched lapels. They also said that his hair was uncharacteristically short for the times, as other men had longer hair. So this guy's short hair really stuck out. Even though he stuck out like a sore thumb to so many people that night, no one had remembered seeing him there before. He was a stranger. Maima and the stranger left together late that night. The last time anyone saw them was on London Road at about 12.30 a.m. before turning to cut across Landistry Street. After Landistry Street, all they would have had to do then is cross James Street, and then they were on McKeith Street, which is the road that Mima's flat was located. They were so close. Mima was so close to safety again, yet Mima never made it home. It's so ominous to me to think that she was literally one or two streets away. She was probably so close that maybe she could see her flat, see her safe place. Imagine her kids there, her sister there, but she didn't make it there because she was stopped and attacked by this man. Sunday morning came and Margaret was very worried when Mima didn't answer her door as she was knocking. She hadn't said anything about plans to be away for another day. Why had she not come home that night? Later in the day, she heard some kids talking together and she kind of like listened in. These kids were talking about seeing a dead body at an abandoned building nearby. Margaret knew that building. It was only about a hundred feet from her flat. At night, the homeless were known to occasionally take up residence there and it was also seen as a place for sex workers to take clients there for privacy. During the day, however, it was a playground for the children of the area, a hangout or a clubhouse, if you will. Remember back then, it wasn't how it is now, different times. Kids just had to be back when it was dark. Other than that, the, the rules, there weren't many rules. There weren't many stranger danger rules mentality. The kids would just go out and find what they wanted to play with. Margaret, though, when she heard this, I'm sure, I'm sure she got a pit in her stomach. She waited all day Sunday just praying for her sister to walk in the door safe and sound. But by Monday morning, she had begun to fear the worst. 